This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, uh, I'd like to touch a little bit on some of the key moments in history for the San Diego innovation economy and the role that local government played in the past. And then I'll segue into the role that local government can play to make sure that this world continues to move forward. So first of all, let's think back um, about 100 years to the formation of what's become the Scripps Research Institute and Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And you could consider that these were the first two research institutes in San Diego, long before UCSD was located here. Uh, UCSD, as an undergraduate institution, started here in the mid-60s, admitted its first undergraduate class in 1964. Uh, In the mid-60s, Jonas Salk chose San Diego for the Salk Institute. And what was very significant was that the voters of San Diego approved giving land, giving land, to both UCSD, the Salk Institute, and General Atomics, uh, the forefathers, and I guess there were probably very few women in local government back then, uh, clearly saw that the economy of San Diego was going to be based on research and development, and that having these institutions here would lead to a robust economy. The, the local government took another step forward by zoning the land on the Torrey Mesa, Pines Mesa for research and development. So that's why as you drive down that street, you see biotech company after biotech company and research institutes, not homes. And that's a good thing for our local economy. Uh, In 1985, the Connect program was started. It was based here at UCSD for um, its first first 15 years. And it was started because the business community in San Diego saw that there was great technology coming out of UCSD and all these research institutes, but that the scientists and engineers were honestly clueless about how to turn it into a company, into a commercial product. And so Connect was started with the goal of linking high-tech and biotech entrepreneurs with the resources they need for success, money, talent, and research, Um, I served as the associate director of Connect for the first 10 years and then left uh, to pursue my own entrepreneurial um, adventures. One thing that Connect helped do in this community is to develop a collaborative spirit. And this collaborative spirit is alive and well today. I see, you know, there are people from both sides of the border here. There are people from many universities, from many companies. And it's this kind of collaborative spirit that is unique to San Diego and is going to play an important role in moving our ecosystem forward. So what can we do as the city of San Diego in local government? So I'm just going to list a few things, and then I'm looking forward to the uh, panel. One of the major things the city council does is land use. Um, I talked about how the city zoned the Torrey Pines Mesa for research and development, how they gave land to UCSD. Uh, So we've got to make sure that we have zoning that is going to allow for the expansion of biotech and high-tech companies. Um, It's really important to preserve this land for these uses because these are the uses that create jobs. Uh, We also um, need to review the process um, in our development services department. How long does it take to get a permit? Uh, Getting permits, you know, the time is money. 
And we certainly want a process that respects the environment, but we also want a process that's as efficient as possible. As a local government, we also need to ensure a long-term supply of water, which is important both for the residents of the city as well as for the biotech industry and other companies. And the city is working on developing what's called pure water facilities. Uh, the old name was toilet to tap. Uh, and we are moving forward with this technology. There's a demonstration facility on Eastgate Mall, uh, which has many public tours during the week. I've gone on a tour. I've I've tasted the water. It's delicious. Uh, I, um, and this and the first part of the pure water facilities will be built um, in that area. It's also great. We also need access to capital. Um, this has been a problem for our companies since the beginning of Connect, uh, which was about 30, 30 years ago. Uh, in the biotech world, I think it's easier today than it was 30 years ago in many ways. Back then, um, most major pharmaceutical companies didn't have a presence in San Diego. Uh, many of them barely knew where San Diego was. That's changed. Um, almost every major pharmaceutical company in the world has invested or bought a company in San Diego. And so they're very aware of us. They come here regularly. Uh, they're one of the major sources of capital uh, for early-stage biotech companies. Uh, in the tech world, we have a more robust angel investor community than I've ever seen, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, the early money is the hardest. Um, I've raised money for companies. I've been told no a lot of times in my life, and so that is still a challenge for us in growing um, the angel community. Um, long term as a region, we need to work together, particularly with our members of Congress, uh, to focus on ensuring that we get our fair share of federal research money. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next administration. I mean, NIH is so important, uh, and the National Science Foundation. I mean, it's over a billion dollars a year coming into our economy, and this is really the basis of the great research that leads to uh, the companies. One of the other important things is the next generation of talent. So we want to make sure that the alums of UCSD, of SDSU, of other universities in the region on both sides of the border stay here after they graduate. And I've seen studies that show a large number of them are in the Bay Area or Seattle three to five years later. Uh, thanks to Mike Crenn and the San Diego Venture Group, who has started the Beachhead, uh, we're now making an effort to go up to the Bay Area and recruit engineers to come to San Diego. Yes, our salaries are a little bit lower here, but when you factor in the cost of living, rents are really high in the Bay Area. Uh, it's, it's, much, it's much more cost effective for an engineer to live in San Diego. A passion of mine is um, bridging the digital divide. And uh, in the last two years, I read a study that US, USC had done about the income disparity in San Diego. Uh, sort of south of eight versus north of eight. And north of eight is where a lot of the high-paying good jobs are. And if we're going to have a San Diego where we want our children and grandchildren to live, we're going to have to bridge the digital divide and make sure that opportunities in the innovation economy are available to all San Diegans. I could talk forever about that, so for today, I'm just going to give you a few things that we can do as a community. I think it starts with having meaningful internship programs so that kids, when they're in high school, 
see the relevance between what they're learning in school and what can be available to them in the workforce. And so I want to encourage companies of all sizes to step forward and offer internship programs. Uh, the San Diego Workforce Partnership has their Connect to Careers program where they can provide stipends for interns and they can help companies incorporate interns into their workplace. I also uh, view the libraries as a very important place uh, for learning. Uh, our, um, the downtown library offers free coding classes and this is being expanded to other libraries uh, thanks to generous grants from the Legler-Benbow Foundation. And I think over the long term, we're going to have to have more private partnerships like this in order to move the San Diego innovation economy forward and to make opportunities available to all San Diegans. I think it's also, it's also important where necessary to give tax breaks. Illumina got some tax breaks from the city when they expanded their manufacturing facility. Uh, they are the largest private employer in the district, uh, the largest employer in the district, and probably the largest employer in San Diego, other than the military, would be UC San Diego, right here. Uh, the environment, preserving our beaches, bays, natural canyons, is also important because the talent and the intellectual talent that we want to attract wants to be in this beautiful place. So our environment is a plus for us, and it's important that we preserve it. Uh, lastly, I'll mention housing, which is, you know, I said it's less expensive than the Bay Area, but it's still very expensive. And so we need to focus on building more housing and more of what's called, more work, what's called workforce housing, and then more affordable housing. And we need to build more of it near transit. And the city council is going to be working actively on this issue this year. And this summer, I found out in, uh, by reading a Voice of San Diego column that Sorrento Valley is not seen as hip by young techies. So many of our recent grads, it said, would prefer, though, to stay in San Diego rather than leave for the Bay Area. As recent UCSD computer science PhD grad Alexander Baxt explained, the main reason why my cohort and I do not want to live in the Bay Area is because we have no interest in the soul-sucking commutes, bank-draining rents, and mission-style burritos. Uh, so we do have the best burritos. It's a competitive advantage. And also, uh, let's not forget the fish tacos. So... One of my long-term goals is to make it easier for the best and the brightest to stay here by building more affordable housing that is centered around public transit. And right now, we're very fortunate that the innovation economy is expanding downtown. Um, as um, Liz mentioned, I was co-founder of a company called Atcom that pioneered high-speed internet access in hotel rooms. Uh, we started in 1995, and we were, I think, one of the first software companies downtown. We were in a funky little building at 308 G Street on the backside of Horton Plaza. But now there's over 100 companies downtown, uh, mostly software, IT, e-commerce, a lot thanks to um, Evo Nexus launching downtown, and a lot because the millennials want to live close to where they work. And so downtown and south is the next place for the innovation economy to expand. And UCSD is playing a, an important role. Uh, UCSD Extension, in collaboration with the Downtown Partnership, has started the collaboratory. Uh, UCSD Extension is going to be... Um, 
partnering in building a facility, a permanent facility that will be located downtown near a trolley stop. A Connect has opened to Beachhead downtown. So these are all good things that harbor um, good news for the innovation economy downtown. So today I've just shared a few of my ideas for ways that we can keep San Diego's innovation economy thriving. Uh, when I decided to run for public office, one of my goals was to make sure that we would have a San Diego where our children and our grandchildren would thrive. And for this to happen, it's essential that this world continue to succeed and that the opportunities be available to all San Diegans. Thank you. Barbara gave a great history of the um, innovation ecosystem that we enjoy here in San Diego. And I'd like to get some input from the panel. We have this, this great uh, presence already. We have really wonderful industries in military, cyber technology, of course, biotechnology, neurosciences, um, and a start, uh, uh, software startups uh, popping up in downtown. That's where we're at right now. Where do you see the innovation economy for San Diego moving forward? How would you like to see it evolve? What do we need to focus on and possibly improve upon? Oh. So I, I get it first, do I? Okay. Um, I mean, there's so many things you could say about this. Uh, what, what do you pick, right? Um, we are, we need to go, go global. Let's, just start with that, right? We need, we, need to be, uh, we need to be a global city. We need to be a global innovation hub. Um, we're, we're, we are one of the most innovative regions in the world, um, but one thing that we're not terribly good at here, I would say, is telling everybody else. Um, you know, I come from Ireland where self-deprecation -de is a science, so I understand this, but... Uh, you know, we need to be better at telling the story. We need to uh, come together as a community like we're doing today and at uh, many other forums uh, throughout, throughout the year. But we need to tell the story. We need to get out there and tell people ex exactly how good we are um, and stop being modest about this, you know? We do things better here than they do in Silicon Valley um, in, in, many, in many respects. And yet my mother who sits in Dublin knows where Silicon Valley is and still doesn't know where San Diego is, you know, and I live here. Um, so if I was to say just one thing, I, um, I would say, uh, you know, let's as a community figure out how do we tell this story better and let's glo go global. So uh, one, one thing I would offer is the following. I think, it's a I think it's time to really diversify what areas we're moving in. And if you look at the research that's happening in the region, this region is well poised to be a, a, a pivotal, uh, to take a pivotal role in the national development of robotics or data science, uh, technologies for assisted living so our elderly can live comfortably, safely, securely in their homes five to ten years more than ever before, precision personalized medicine. These are all hot research topics that are happening right now, not just on this campus, but in a circle 10 or 15 miles in radius around here. And if we can get the innovation economy uh, focused on these new growth areas, as uh, I think it was Barbara who mentioned, right, you want to focus on the new things that are coming, then I think this region could be well-known, not just for having 100 brew pubs, uh, uh, and now with uh, Paul 101, uh, but a whole bunch of other very interesting technology plays that drive the economy. 
Yes, yeah, so I would um, echo a couple of those comments. I just came back, as, as was mentioned, uh, from a trip to Japan. And it's really fascinating that, that even there's so much going on here, uh, but we're looked upon as a city where others can learn from. So I was at the University of, of uh, Kyoto University, and they're looking to potentially create some sort of accelerator create, uh, or incubator you know, there at their medical school and, and more broadly at their university. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops, but they're looking at San Diego as being a core place where they can learn more about how to make that happen. What was also interesting, as I mentioned to Alan way in, was that when I was in Tokyo on the way down, one of the first people I saw was actually a picture of, of was Al on this video <laughs> screen where he was making some comments from their office that they opened back in, in July. So congratulations on the first mover uh, in, into Tokyo there, which is also another place where we had an opportunity to speak with two different accelerator programs and also one investment fund uh, that began to expand there. So I think that certainly Paul's comment about being global is important. I think that, that I guess my uh, takeaway and my message is that what we're seeing from the outside is that people are looking towards us to be a leader in terms of how they create their ecosystems. Um, so when I started at the Connect program back in 1986, I could have counted the number of biotech companies on two hands, starting with Hypertech, and I could have named all of them. And today we have industries I never dreamed of. I don't think I, I knew the word security, but I didn't know the word cyber, so I would never have put cybersecurity together. Uh, wireless health, bioalgae. Um, so we have things, you know, today I never dreamed of, and Al just mentioned sort of the up and coming. And I think there's things, again, that we can't even dream of that are going to be on the horizon. So it's really important that this community stay on the cutting edge, that it be open to new ideas, and it be very collaborative. That's one of the reasons we've succeeded in the past. I mean, the BRAIN initiative is all about collaboration, collaboration among research institutes, among researchers. In many communities, you know, like the, the researchers at one institute won't talk to the researchers at another. And we don't do that here in San Diego, and that's a good thing. Um, the last thing I'll say is you always should play to your strength, and one of our strengths is our binational economy, and that can be a strength moving forward for us. As, and I agree with Paul that we need to market the region better, and part of marketing the region better is that we is the binational piece. Yeah, just uh, thank you. I'll just have one quick comment. So in, in, I'm fortunate, at least in, in my position, to, uh, to go across the, the western region of the United States and, and meet with communities and, and academic institutions and really look to ways that the, the USPTO can kind of embed itself and be part of the community. And when um, I mentioned we didn't have regional offices four years ago, that whole process was a pretty intensive process. You know, there were 600 municipalities vying for the USPTO to open uh, their, the regional office in their backyards. And I know a lot of the efforts from the city of San Diego to try to get that done. Um, but even though we're up in Silicon Valley, you know, we definitely feel part of the San Diego community. But, you know, as I mentioned, I get to go around and meet with all these other municipalities, and pretty much everywhere I go, I'm kind of the catalyst where I can connect different parts of the community that didn't know each other existed. And I just have to say, I don't see that in San Diego. You know, it, this is a very well-connected, collaborative community, and it's, it's, quite frankly, extremely impressive, and I'm happy to be a part of it as well. So you do have to tell your story. So thanks for sharing all of your visions for what you could see for the region. I guess the next logical step is we have all of these stakeholders, and they're all very well represented up on the stage from government to academia to private industry. 
and um, uh, NGOs. So now that we have this vision for the future, how can the actual stakeholders present in the San Diego ecosystem make that vision come to life? And if you'd like to specifically share, if you haven't already, um, specifically what your organization can do to help us all achieve that vision. All right, so uh, let me take a crack at that, and then my uh, colleagues uh, can leverage and uh, continue forward. So, you know, I run the largest school of engineering in the state of California. It's bigger than Stanford and Berkeley combined. It's actually almost bigger than any other two schools in California combined. So we have assigned ourselves three very important roles. Uh, Yes, we generate the technology. Yes, we generate the talent. But we're also teaming with all the other entities on campus, such as the business school or other uh, divisions, uh, so that we are helping to educate the technical leadership that you need for the region to thrive. So I'll offer that, uh, hi, we're doing our best with a large group of people, 2,250 students into the workforce last year alone. That's what's happening in your backyard from just one school, not counting all the others in the region. So we're doing our best for talent, leadership, and technology, and I'm hoping that uh, that starts turning the tide. I take it next. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to echo um, Al's comments. Um, you know, talent is key to everything, right? Um, and that's really what we develop here first and foremost at the university. Um, and, you know, just to add to what Al said, basically we, we need to be producing the leaders of the future, um, the business leaders, the societal leaders of the future, recognizing that the economy is different now to what it was 10 years ago even and certainly different to what it was 30 years ago. Um, so that's a very important part of what I'm sure Al thinks about all day long and what, what certainly I th- um, spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, the other piece of what I think about is the um, we spend a billion dollars in research. Well, we, yes, we spend a billion dollars in research here at the university every year. Billion, with a B. That's a lot of research. Um, we need to make sure that society benefits from that. Um, we need to make sure that people, you know, get the, the, the benefits of that on the back end. So um, to my, uh, part of my job is to make sure that that technology gets to where it needs to go. And it gets into the hands of the entrepreneurs that are going to develop new companies, new products and services. That gets into the hands of um, our regional companies, global companies, um, and that really society is getting um, payback you know, on, the, on the back end for all the money that they're spending on the research. Um, so one, one thing that we can certainly do and we are doing is to lower the barriers um, to technologies making the move um, you know, from the academic sector out into the private sector. And not just technologies, um, but we have, we, we, it's incumbent on us as well um, to develop socially. Um, and, and social innovation is a, is a huge part of what we're looking at as well. How do we contribute to sustainable society and to quality of life in our region? So there's some of the things I would think about. That's fantastic, Paul. Um, so I would sort of take the, the next step, and at least from Connect's perspective. Um, so, you know, ha- having having an impact is really critical. And if you can't bring a service or a product to market, then you actually don't have impact. So, our a big part of what we're trying to do is to help have impact by actualization of these fantastic ideas. So, taking those elements that everyone's talked about 
uh, great talent, uh, access to money, access to great research, and ultimately then bringing, helping to bring services and products to market. Um, Rupert Van Butler's in the audience with us today who ran our, our uh, mentoring program for about 10 years, which is a, a critical element. But going forward, one of the things that, that we see as being really critical to the elements of, of the ecosystem here is access to more risk capital and better appetite or a different type of appetite towards early-stage ventures. Barbara talked about how hard it is to raise money. We started a program about a year and a half ago called Capital Match to help companies raise their first, say, 500000 to $2 million, some of the hardest to, to raise. And we think that's going to be a critical element in terms of having impact and bringing products and services to market. So a lot of other great things have been said, but I think that one of the things that we're going to focus on is, is uh, changing the investment environment and making it hopefully a little bit easier to bring capital to companies. One of the ways that we'll do that, um, and, and I think Mike Krenz already uh, was mentioned earlier, you know, through Mike's initiative and in trying to tap the Bay Area, we also want to help bring capital from the outside uh, because we think there's fantastic uh, opportunities for investors that are being overlooked uh, in part because of the valuations being so much better here. I think the role of local government is to provide the infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure is to make sure we have good public transit, we have clean air, we have water, we have affordable housing, uh, and we have land that is appropriately zoned for the expansion of biotech and high-tech. And those are my priorities as a city council member. I, I will just add one thing. You know, when it comes to you know, what, what uh, other resources can be added, and from a, a federal uh, agency perspective, you know, one thing that I've been working on and doing this across the region is bringing together the different federal programs that have uh, support for the small business and entrepreneurial communities and bringing them together as a collaborative as well. Uh, there's, you know, I was actually on a flight uh, coming back from, um, actually I was coming back from Portland and I happened to be sitting next to somebody who uh, it was you know, a CEO of a company and just merged with another company in the Bay Area. And uh, you know, we were chatting and they started laughing. And you know, I said, oh, it's so funny. He said, well, you know, we, uh, we had a bet that once we filed our SEC filing, how long it would take before we got our first lawsuit. And the answer was seven minutes. And, um, and so there are a lot of entities that like to prey on new and emerging enterprises, and particularly uh, not just with respect to, to patents and, and trademarks, but with respect to cybersecurity threats and with respect to tax fraud and, and high-interest business loans and things like that. So I've been working with our federal colleagues and representatives across the region, and you know, especially as you're working in this disruptive technology and trying to do new things in a better way, um, this program, we're actually going to call it Disruptors versus Predators, uh, to, to really highlight what the risks are for businesses and how the the federal resources that are there to help you uh, be aware of what those risks risks are, and then if you do fall victim, uh, the resources there to help you through it. I think something that's just been touched upon by John and Greg has been the concept of risk. And for anyone that started a company, that's the the ever-present fear in the background is it's, it's, it's a risky endeavor to start your own company. It takes a lot of audacity. And, and you have to be okay with handling the risk in a manageable way. So I'd like to uh, ask, in our current economy, we, have, we, we live in a face of lots of quantitative easing and low interest rates, and investors are looking everywhere for returns, which can some, somewhat 
change the way you face investments. Um, in, the, in that background, and kind of touching upon the, the importance of risk capital, as, as Greg mentioned, is there a way that with, with our representative um, stakeholder agencies up here on this panel, is there a way that we can align that risk and reward for the entrepreneur in a more effective way to make sure that we're investing all of society's capital as best as we possibly can? <laughs> Easy question, <laughs> right to the heart of it. See if I can um, help to kind of get this started. So I guess my first comment is it's a good thing that Warren Buffett isn't the only guy that's in, investing or has money out there because he wouldn't want to invest in anything that you guys are working on. Um, so it's a good thing there's a lot of other risk capital. The other thing I was going to mention, so speaking of risk, a little, another little story I just learned of recently. So we had an MIP winner this year, Human Nick, uh, Nick Namesh. And Human um, is, is Persian-Canadian, of course, who came down to the United States to start his second career. He and his wife started a English as a second language school many years ago, and they sold that very successfully. And now he has created a new venture, which is this underwater propulsion system called Bixby. And they were winner of MIP this year. And it's all going very well, and it sounds terrific. And he's raised some money, and he did a Kickstarter campaign like everyone would do, right? And... The, one of the first things that happened to him, he didn't get sued, but what occurred was that someone in China picked up on the fact that he was running a very, very successful Kickstarter campaign. They actually already copied his product and launched it before he was able to get it to market. Oh. So really little interesting, um, challenging, uh, you know, little twist in terms of what's happened now with some of the tools that are around. But I think that, that um, you know, so, so risk is around, as you had mentioned, it's, it's all over. And I think that, that we're, we're actually doing a pretty good job already right now in being able to manage that through all the different resources that are here in town. I think that we're all learning to figure out kind of what our role is in this ecosystem, uh, whether it's the university and, and Al creating some great talent, as he mentioned, or great research, as Paul had mentioned earlier, um, or Barbara with the infrastructure that's taking place here. There's so many different components to create the next successful, you know, you pick your favorite company, Uber, um, you know, what have you. And uh, so I think that where, you know, the, the better that we can figure out our, our areas of expertise and focus on that and then combine that through our collaborative efforts, the better we can help support those that will become hopefully the next great multi-billion um, dollar value companies. So uh, let me leverage off uh, what Greg said and add a few things, which is, uh, through the combined efforts, let's just look at San Diego for a second, UC San Diego. Through the combined efforts of Paul Robin's organization, School of Management here on the campus, School of Engineering, and a myriad other organizations, we're trying to de-risk uh, some of the uh, uh, experiences of the entrepreneur or entrepreneur-to-be by putting in uh, meaningful and practical training programs. So imagine an environment where an, uh, someone who has an entrepreneurial idea can actually discuss that idea in a special zone where they don't have to worry about their IP being taken away. Imagine that they have ready access to mentors who've been around the loop a couple of times, and in fact, some of them who can make connections to uh, people who uh, might be able to provide some seed funding. Uh, and so these, uh, uh, these opportunities exist on this campus. I'll let Paul elaborate a little bit more. Uh, engineering is one of the uh, 
paint cups in Paul's palette, as it were, uh, in which we get this valuable work done. I think I see one of my mentors or entrepreneurial coaches out there right now. He's uh, slouching down. Uh, So uh, uh, that's okay. I won't call you out. Uh, But the point is that uh, one way to handle the risk is to say, let's just make you smarter about what's out there. And let's just try to eliminate those beginner mistakes by having you rub elbows with the experienced. Yeah, so uh, I think you said it very well. You know, it's, it's really about creating an innovation fabric, if you like, across the region, um, you know, starting maybe with the university, but all of the partners um, across the region, so that it's easy for an entrepreneur to navigate the system, so that it's very easy for him or her to um, identify the people, the resources that they need to get from where they are now to the next step. Make that as easy as we possibly can. Um, bring those resources, bring those people. And the only way we can really achieve that is through um, a very, very high degree of collaboration, which is where our strength is at San Diego, as Barbara has pointed out. Um, and that's why we have the jump on all of these other regions. Um, you know, and, and, and it's really our strength. Um, I would also say, in terms of risk, I mean, society, in a way, has um, already decided to assume the riskiest end, end of technology development by um, investing in research in all of our public organizations. Um, so we have to figure out ways to capitalize on that possibly a bit better than we've done in the past um, and not um, put up barriers to that, right? And, and frankly, intellectual property is a fantastic business tool, but it can also be thrown out there as a barrier, um, and we need to sort of look at that system. Um, to make sure that we're we're getting free flows of technologies as well. Um, I'll just add a few things. Well, we need more successful exits, and when entrepreneurs have a successful exit, it's really important that they stay involved, and we do have some wonderful examples in San Diego. I mean, Ivor Royston was co-founder of Hypertech. You know, he then became a venture capitalist, it has invested in you know many many companies here, including you know what started out as IDEC. Um, Mark Bowles recently sold Eco ATM, and he's now invested in at least ten early stage companies. Uh, Dan Bradbury was the CEO of Amelin when it was sold. I think it was to Bristol Myers, and he also has a very active uh, portfolio of investments. And we need more of these stories. We need to publicize more of these stories. So as people have successful exits, they're going to want to become engaged. And one of the keys is that you, you, need, more, you need to do more than one, uh, unless you're really lucky the first time. <laughs> is there anything for you to add, John? Well, I'll just tell one quick story. So <laughs> I was at the Consumer Electronics Show uh, last year, and uh, we, we have a presence in Eureka Park with the 600 startups, and it gives us an opportunity to go and, and meet with the startups and, um, and kind of a- answer any questions they might have and also help them understand what some of the risks are about being in a trade show, if you, especially if you don't have patent protection. And, um, and this one, uh, actually, it was, a, it was a Southern California company, uh, I walked by the booth and had this really cool trademark. Uh, their marketing was great. Their, uh, their branding, you know, really cool you know, logo and their branding. And their product design was really neat. And I said, oh, all this looks great. You know, tell me about your patent strategy. And, and he looked at me and said, well, I haven't filed my patent yet. 
And you know, we talk about risks, and we don't have time to really get into the details, but that's a huge risk, is being in a trade show in a public forum like that, demonstrating a product. And he goes, but I just joined a crowdfunding campaign today, which like triples that risk, especially if you don't have patent protection. So a big piece uh, that's connected to the underlying issue for all that we're talking about, all, you know, from the work that's coming out of the engineering schools and all the work trying to connect the innovation community is really making sure that they're not falling victim to risk and, uh, and, and you know, for the, as much as you know, the USPTO can be here to help support and identify what those risks are and, and help them avoid you know, falling into some of the pitfalls. Thank you. I guess the corollary to risk is, and, and touching upon one of John's areas of expertise with regards to intellectual property, one of the things facing a startup, obviously, is, is what do they have? What, what's their secret sauce? And we operate here in a university environment that's very open and collaborative. You're encouraged to share your, your um, scientific results with the community to advance society. And then on the other side, we have a, a private company who it's in their best interest to have something under lock and key so they can openly um, demonstrate their technology and make a profit, get a reward. How do we best balance... Um, as, as members of university and government up here, how do we best balance, um, I guess, vis-a-vis -vis our uh, intellectual property? Uh, how do we best balance between openly, open scientific sharing and proprietary information? Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take somewhat of a contrarian view on this. So, you know, I think when you want to start a company, you should talk about it to a lot of people. That doesn't mean you should give, you know, how you're exactly going to do the code or what the DNA or what. I'm not a biotech person, as you can tell. Um, but I think you need to talk about it to a lot of people to get good feedback. Um, so, for example, when um, my husband Neil and I were starting our first software company, Neil was skiing in Park City took the chairlift up with an ophthalmologist from um, Atlanta, told him what we were trying to do, the man ended up investing, as well as other doctors in Atlanta, that we had a very good outcome. They were very happy. But that's sort of been our philosophy with all the companies we've done, is we talk about it. You don't give the secret, secret sauce, but you do need feedback quickly. And I, and I think sometimes what we, you know, we taught entrepreneurship here and, and the students in the room were, you know, people earning PhDs and faculty members, people have had intellectual capability much beyond ours, but they didn't understand sort of the basics of business and the, and the importance of talking to your customer. I think Al just talked about it. So I think, you know, you have to get out there when you, when you have an idea and, and it starts with talking to your customer and talking to potential investors. No, I agree with that. Just real quickly, it is uh, you know if I have a 3D printer that's 50% faster, like I'm not telling you how I'm making it faster. So there are there are some levels that you should and and can talk about your invention, but you definitely want to understand where that line lies, and it's going to be different for every company and in every business model. Um, I'm going to go off a little bit in left field as well and sort of follow you. Um, uh, yeah, I think the concept of intellectual property um, has gotten almost too broad in a way. Um, 
everything must be proprietary these days. Everything must be protected. Everything must be intellectual property. Well, in actual fact, that's not the reality. Um, you know, we should protect things with, with patents and with intellectual property where appropriate. Um, but it shouldn't be thrown up as a barrier in a relationship between a university and a company, for example. Um, and, and just to sort of maybe explain a little bit what I'm saying, um, I look back through 10 years at, at UCSD and all of the um, collaborations that we've had with industry over the past 10 years. And if you look at all those collaborations um, and look for the ones that generated intellectual property, which was then licensed by the company, so something that you know, was actually created and licensed by the company, that happened in 1% of the time. Right? So 99% of the time it didn't happen, and yet we argue over intellectual property you know, at, at the beginning of all these relationships. And that's not a bad thing. Um, but what it means is there's a difference between intellectual property and data and results. Um, you know, a lot of what we do at the university, and I hope I'm not really going off in left field here, is, is um, we generate data, we generate results, we generate information that should be disseminated broadly, but it's not always intellectual property. And I think we need to have a sort of a better uh, feel for that. And I think we'd um, have a much um, freer flow of information back and forward between our partners and between us and the real world, perhaps, if we, if we got a better handle on that. Yeah, I'd like to add one more thing. Whether you're successful in the end is all about execution. Um, Atcom, we weren't the first company to think about doing high-speed internet access in hotel rooms, but we developed the best software. We executed. When I was the vice president of marketing at proflowers.com, we weren't the first company to be direct from the grower to the consumer, but we were the first company to scale the model and build a business of several hundred million dollars a year in revenue through the processes we developed, some of which we were able to patent. But in the end, it was about execution. And that's why you know, sharing your idea, your, the ideas are cheap. It's the execution that's hard. So if I can just add, uh, just uh, without turning it into a big debate, but <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it really depends on why you want your intellectual property. I talked about that earlier. Is it for a licensing strategy? Is and and you don't know when you filed the application what type of revenue you're going to generate from it. So so there is that kind of amount of cushion in there if you are going for a licensing strategy. If you need it for a defensive strategy, just so you have you know, the ability to do what you want to do, you know, that's an important thing too. If you want an offensive strategy uh, where you're actually you know, creating technology and asserting those rights on other uh, entities, you know, the, the law exists for that. Um, if you need it, as I mentioned, for valuation or for collateral to get funding and things along those lines. All of, it's not just a licensing strategy. And, and um, you know, we just actually released uh, on our website, uh, we have something called the, the, the data portal. And it's, um, and in there you can manipulate a lot of different patent data because we make so much information public. And uh, one of the things, one of the reports there shows the patenting activity of just university patenting activity. And uh, the, the UC system is twice that. It's number one, of course. And it's twice that of number two, which is MIT. But granted, the UC system is huge, so it's uh, many campuses and that, that all combine. But at the same time, uh, you know, it's, it's been... Uh, 
you know, it, and I know that the President Napolitano and her initiative with uh, incubators and trying to create, um, you know, encourage the UC universities to really foster the innovation ecosystems within the university and more importantly, like they're doing here at UC San Diego within the community um, has really taken, I've seen it evolve over the past two or three years. And, uh, you know, I think that it's absolutely the direction that uh, is helping the communities succeed. And, you know, again, like patents can play a role. It just depends on what your strategy is. So I'd like to offer a slightly different view, which is it's entirely appropriate that there be a healthy tension between what's open and what's closed. And depending on the industries you're talking about, you set that dividing line in different places. So, for example, very few people patent software. Why bother? As soon as you patent it, you gave it away. So, you know, software is done as, uh, what, corporate secret, proprietary secret. So uh, the point I want to make is, one, that tension needs to be there. That's how you help sort out what's important and what's not. If you feel vulnerable because someone else might know something, now you know that's the important thing, (laughs) and that is something you may want to guard. The other thing is, you know, IP is different in different fields, right? In biology, it's very different than in mechanical design. That's very different than in uh, 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 software. So I think uh, how you set that tension is different region or uh, different in the types of technology, and I think the tension is actually important and healthy. Well, I think uh, that that ended up being a great debate. We had uh, several of our contrarians agree, and we had some some good balance between the, the, the forces here. Uh, along the lines of um, the healthy tension between um, what is important and what's not, I, I want to take the opportunity to ask this question as long as we have um, John on the stage. Uh, right now we have a system of copyright and patent. And sometimes software falls under patents, sometimes under copyright. And the terms associated with each of those, very, very different. Copyright happens to be much, much longer, thank you to perhaps the Disney Corporation. Um, and, and meanwhile, we also have new things happening in biotech, like CRISPR-Cas9. And it's, now we have this method that's not just a composition of matter, but also a method of therapy and delivery. So here we have business process patents, design patents, software patents, and uh, trademarks, copyrights, all of these different kinds of things, and new technologies arising. Do we all collectively have to take a look at where we're at with that and maybe come up with a new hybrid type of intellectual property? Um, So I I think the the easy answer is obviously... (laughs) You know, it, go, going back to it depends on what you need the protection for, right? So you can, and, and this has been the way that it's been for, for many years, as technologies ebb and flow and, and evolve and emerge, uh, you know, the, there's often times, and, and if not most times, that one form of intellectual property uh, is likely not going to be sufficient. You might need multiple patents. You might need utility and a design patent. You might be able to use a patenting strategy and a trade secret strategy. And, and when it comes to software, and I'm definitely not getting into that debate, um, but, you know, software is copyrighted. You know, once it's any sort of medium 
any sort of uh, creation that is uh, embodied in a medium, you know, has some sort of copyright protection. But when it comes to patents, the answer is like, is software patentable? And the answer is it depends. Uh, and it depends on how you go about protecting it. And that's really where the devil's in the details and where, you know, this is a field of law and where it gets complicated is really understanding what those lines are. Um, but I think one, one example I like to give uh, with respect to you, you, right now, I don't know whether we need a new system, but we are looking, you know, to, you know, to the, the communities and to our stakeholders for their feedback. Is there anything we need to change with the system that we have now? And we're, we've started those steps uh, just a couple months ago. Um, but, but going back to this blended approach, uh, you know, one example is, so say, for example, you're, you've invented this really unique way to make the color brown, right? But you don't want to tell anybody how to make the color brown. But instead, you go and you get a patent on how to make red, you get a patent on how to make yellow, and a patent on how to make blue, which combine to make brown, right? Um, so you can use the combination of patenting strategies and trade secret strategies to, um, to protect yourself, and, and really any form of intellectual property. So it really just depends on what, what your product is and the best way to go about protecting it. I want to, um, first of all, just um, sort of defend and support John and his office and what they're doing. I, you know, from my perspective, the, the tools that are in our toolkit that you provide through USPTO are absolutely fantastic, and they're, they're world-class. Um, in the life science industry, patents are, are tantamount. You can't get your company funded if you don't have patents. What's ironic, as sort of was mentioned here uh, on the stage earlier, was that um, sometimes patents actually aren't necessary or are needed. Sometimes you can use other tools. Uh, in that. So I think what you're seeing is it's really dependent on the, the space, but also the timing. I mean, my personal view is the university ought to be, you know, I'd be curious to see what, what Paul and, and Al say about this, but I think that the university ought to be pushing technology out and, and letting it move into the ecosystem very, very easily and freely, because I, I think that at that stage, there's so many things that, frankly, are, are, are going to, it's just so challenging to figure out which ones are going to make it and which ones aren't. A lot of things won't be commercializable. But what I saw in my, my time in Asia was that, you know, interestingly, Japan really didn't care about IP, um, early on, as they were copying and, and, and taking ideas from, from our companies, it wasn't a big deal. But as they sort of asymptotically approached our intellectual uh, sort of IP you know, level, then all of a sudden IP became a really important issue, and they got pretty stubborn about maintaining the, the rights uh, to their know-how. I would predict the next, the, the next 20, 30 years, the same thing will happen with China. They don't really respect IP in the same way we, we do right now, but I think that over a period of time, they will as they become leaders in certain types of, of fields. So I think a lot of it is both field-dependent and also time-dependent, uh, but I would say that right now we probably have one of the best uh, systems anywhere that has a lot of different flexibility depending on the, the particular use in mind. Um, yeah, um, so I think I'm going to have to buy you a drink after this, John, <laughs> to, to make up for all this. Um, no, I... Uh, you asked, you know, should there be a hybrid patent or a hybrid system of, of some sort? Um, I have no idea. Um, but, you know, the, the system has been in place for a long time. Um, you know, and you get a patent on software, you get a patent on a therapeutic, um, you know, effectively the patent, patent itself is, you know, is very similar. Yet you can get to market with a software in a year. It can take 10 or 15 years to get to market with a therapeutic and lots of money. So, you know, maybe there's room for a discussion to uh, realign or, or at least have a look at it, um, you know, and sort of realigning the patent process 
um, with the actual market realities of the products that are being developed and being patented. Um, I don't know what that would lead to, you know, whether it's a hybrid patent or, or whatever, but um, I think it would be an interesting discussion to have. So, uh, and, uh, and we welcome those discussions. We do, uh, we don't really talk too much about resources, but we have a slew of resources available for entrepreneurs uh, in not only understanding the different types of IP, but also help with filing your applications, uh, understanding where to get free legal services through the pro bono and law school clinic programs. But, uh, but I, I mention it uh, b because, um, you know, with respect to uh, how we, you know, support the communities and, and the way that, uh, you know, the way that we are responsive to uh, and how we Im implement the work that we do, we have to follow the guidance that comes from the Supreme Court. So that's basically our charge. So we can't make up our own rules. Uh, we, you know, Congress can enact new laws or amend laws and and, uh, but at the same time, you know, any decisions that come from the Supreme Court, we have to operate in, in, in concert with those decisions, which sometimes is very challenging because not only do we have to concert, uh, operate in concert with them, our stakeholders do. And these are decisions that are applied retroactively. So after a Supreme Court decision is rendered, it applies to all the applications that were filed and currently in force. Um, and, and that's, uh, that sometimes can be unfortunate to some of those applications which, which may not now uh, be patent eligible as a result of a follow-on Supreme Court decision. But when you mentioned the time differences, one thing that I did want to highlight with respect to resources is we do have a, a program called Track One uh, where we will expedite, and usually you get your first response from an examiner on average of two months, and, uh, and that usually on average the entire process is concluded just uh, just around six months, six and a half months. So there is a way to get a, a quick decision uh, from the USPTO, and then we've also dramatically almost cut in half now uh, the time it takes to uh, to get your application through. Over the past uh, five six years, we've made some dramatic headway there as well, uh, just for the traditional route. So it's my little plug. All right, we've talked about like how we as different stakeholders can enhance an innovation economy. But I kind of want to hear your perspective on why it's important. Why do we all have to collaborate and work together? And personally, what is it about an innovation ecosystem that drives you? All right, I'll take the first crack at that. Um, I think there are three things uh, that at least drive us in engineering and me in, and me in particular. Uh, the first thing is that everyone I talk to is hot for it. They really want to see it happen. Uh, and that means the companies I talk to, the constituents I talk to, and the students I talk to. So the first reason is if I didn't do it, they'd all be beating me over the head. And uh, so therefore, hey, you know, I'm, I'm full in. The second reason is that I just love it. I think it's spectacular. It's a very exciting thing. And the third thing, the third reason is if you really think driving a bulldozer is that much fun, in the winter in New York, uh, maybe the innovation economy looks like a good way uh, to earn a living. So uh, I'll just offer my three observations, and hopefully someone will pick it up from there. Yes, yeah, so, so I would add to that a, a couple things, um, but some, somewhat similar. So the first, I think, is impact. Right? I mean, Barbara had mentioned the number from uh, our impact report that 25% of the ecosystem uh, GDP is it's, um, all driven by technology and life science companies, so about 50 billion dollars of the 212 ecosystem here is all that, and I would predict that's going to grow. 
so impact is certainly the first thing. Um, and I think it's going to be global impact, as Paul had kind of mentioned you know, as well. It's all about kind of being global from here forward. Second of all, I would say it's, it's about the, the, it is about the the excitement or the challenge, the evolution. It's, it's, in our, it's literally in our human DNA to evolve and change. That's what this is all about. It's not about doing the same thing over and over. It's about iterating uh, little by little, and that's what this uh, ecosystem is doing. And then thirdly, I'd say it's, uh, this is all because of my nine-year-old daughter um, <laughs> who's driving me. So I'm, I'm not quite a grandfather yet. Hopefully someday um, I'll catch up with Barbara maybe. But right now I've got a nine-year-old daughter, and, and frankly, I'm not training her uh, to be a driver of a bulldozer, although I'm sure that would be a nice little skill set to have for, for, uh, for giggles. And so we'll definitely ask, you know, I'll probably tap you at some point to teach her that, Al. If but wants lessons, I can provide. Thank you, yes. But what I'd rather do is have her enroll at the, the School of Engineering um, and get a, a, a PhD in engineering and then go on and start a, a great technology-based company. So that's, that's a big driver for me personally. Um. So I'll just add a few things. First of all, um, I'm going to second what some of what we've heard. I've been blessed in my life that almost every day that I've gone to work, I've had a great time. And it's because I've spent a lot of my life working you know, on the cutting edge. Um, second, we actually do need the people who drive the bulldozers, and they earn good salaries. And they actually depend on us to have the jobs because they're going to build the houses, the apartment buildings, the office buildings, the research facilities that these companies are going to need. And, and they earn good salaries. And so they are very dependent on the innovation economy. Um, and third, um, I think it's in the DNA in San Diego. Uh, we have a long history of entrepreneurship, starting with the aerospace entrepreneurs. The spirit of St. Louis was built here. This is part of San Diego's DNA. So, I mean, in, in my perspective, you know, a, why should we make it difficult, right? So that's the, you know, the reason we, we have this, I think, innate desire to help people. And I know early on in my career at the USPTO, uh, I was working a help desk, and uh, this gentleman called, and, and he, uh, he said, oh, finally, I got somebody on the line. And, uh, you know, you, you took all my patent, you, you took all my money, and, uh, you, know, you know, where's my patent? And, uh, you know, it turned out that he had fallen victim to one of the fraudulent invention promotion firms that took like seventeen or $18,000, and this was 20 years ago now. Um, so that experience for me was when I was on the phone with that person that had been burnt um, and, and being the one that was there on the line with him when he realized that he had been scammed is why I do it. Um, I would say to your first question, why should we collaborate? Because no one person can do this by themselves. And I think every um, entrepreneur understands that, so you need to collaborate. Um, entrepreneurship isn't for everybody, um, but if it is for you and you have a good idea that you think can make a difference in people's lives, then you should do it. And I think it's uncom incumbent on the rest of us to make it easy for you to do that. Um, and the third thing I would say is uh, it's fun. There is nothing more fun than starting a company. I mean, it is mind-blowingly, soul-suckingly fun, right? It, it is the best and the worst thing you will ever do in your life. Um, but it is fun. I'd like to add one thing. I think in today's world, everyone has to think like an entrepreneur, whether it's in your own company, a large company, government, a nonprofit. Entrepreneurship is everywhere, and we all have to think like an entrepreneur. 
Are there any questions from the audience? So my question is like this uh, following up on Barbara, the historical component, this idea of like accident and design. Imagine that we arrive here by accident, for example, Scripps Institute or Scripps Clinic or the spirit of St. Louis. What do you see if you have to design 2050? We are 2017. If you have to design 2050 where AI will be replacing a lot of humans and everything, what would you see? One liner. So you're asking one big thing in 2050 for San Diego. Um, will be the world's leaders in biological based city design. Get your head around that one. <laughs> you have to explain what it is. We designed, well, this was an idea that we were uh, batting around last week, actually. You know, we designed cities based on uh, silicon and electrons and wireless and all this kind of stuff. Um, the human body is, is, in effect, like a city. It's far more adaptable, resilient, responsive. We should be designing cities like the human body. Um, I, I would say that, that I think we're going to be um, the most innovative city that's allowed, that allows and is capable of integrating more and different unique types of technologies than any other place. I mean, one of the things, I mean, Barbara kind of quoted again from our impact report, that completely blew me away coming out of the life science industry was the diversity of technology that, that's here in the ecosystem. I mean, it's just it's staggering. Uh, and I think that that allows us and will allow us in the next 20, 30, 40 years to understand where that convergence is going to take place better than any other city in the planet. Well, um, now I'll talk as a city council member, not as an entrepreneur. So my dream vision is that we have an innovation economy in which people from all our communities participate and that we figured out a way uh, not to have traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I would offer in 2050, uh, San Diego will have a set of new technologies, whether it be personalized precision medicine or uh, robust energy resources that will make this city the mecca for people who want to learn uh, how to have the highest quality of life that you can find in the uh, Western Hemisphere. I'm probably going to go larger if that's okay. But <laughs> um, actually, I think you know it came up in Nikki's earlier question, you know, with respect to like, do we need to design a new system? And you know, I think ultimately having a system that is a, a patent system that is enforceable in multiple countries and making that whole process more streamlined. And I mean, we've made such tremendous headway in the past 20, 30 years, but it takes a long time to advance that kind of change when we're talking uh, from country to country, especially multilaterally. But that's, that's one of the things that I think would really help advance innovation is by making, you know, we are a global system now. We, you know, our markets are global, uh, innovation is global. So being able to, to acquire and then also protect and enforce those rights more seamlessly internationally, I think is the, you know, will even help advance innovation further, regardless of the municipality. So. Do I have time for one more question? Okay, quick thank you. Um, and to piggyback off the futuristic talk that we were already discussing, and maybe this is a solution to your traffic um, 
hope for the future. Um, is the city planning, or I'm curious, is the city already planning uh, for autonomous vehicles totally replacing the vehicles we know it as today? And is there the infrastructure um, going to change? You know what? I don't know the answer, but I'd, love to, I'd like to find out. I know the mayor is very supportive of having San Diego be a testing ground for autonomous vehicles. Um, I don't know all the infrastructure kinds of things we'd have to put in place to do more than testing. Um, so we have um, a regional agency called SANDAG, the San Diego Association of Governments. They do the transit planning for the region, and that's uh, something I need to learn more about. Traditionally, it's been very difficult for tech companies to get small business loans. Uh, has there been any thought to, well, these loans can be underwritten with cash. Has there any thought given to having an innovation fund that could underwrite small business loans for tech companies? Um, I'll, I'll take it either from Barbara or... Well, I'll just say from my history, the Small Business Administration type loans are not geared for early stage companies. Uh, they're generally based on collateral, real estate. I mean, so people, some, you know, some entrepreneurs, you know, get second mortgages on their homes and put that into the company. Um, but SBA loans, as they're de currently designed, are not set up to be equity investments in early stage companies. It's, you know, the riskiest type of investing, and that's not what the SBA is set up to do at this time. Okay, so I'll, I'll offer a, another comment, which is uh, based on the rate at which uh, NorCal entrepreneurs are coming down to this region to check out the deal flow and the buzz, uh, I think uh, it is uh, very likely in the next few years that you will see some sort of regional fund for early-stage ventures at some rather large size, because I think the region is on the map. There are a number of uh, candidates for limited partnership who could put significant money into the region, and I think that uh, it's only a matter of time before that happens. Yeah, I'll just add one more thing. You know, SBA loans are geared to companies that have revenues and profits. It's not what startups have. <laughs> no, I know it. that's the gap I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. It's, it's very tough for companies without revenue to go to the SBA. Yeah, so there are, you know, I've learned there's, there are, there's a program in San Diego called Acción that does very, I mean, small, 100,000 is big for them, which for a startup is, well, can be a lot of money or a little money, and they are looking more at this kind of investing for part of what they do. And I won't comment on, on the, the loans because I'm not too familiar with them, but I will say that, you know, in addition to the loans offered by through the SBA, one thing you might want to look into is the grants that are offered from many of the grant funding bodies across the federal government, from uh, the SBIR programs, the NSF programs, the NIH programs, and any other acronym I can think of. Um, but, but there's a lot of money available for research and development and advancement uh, grant money so that in the tech area. So. Perhaps Greg could add regarding some of the efforts Connect has done with regards to the Jobs Act and crowds, crowdfunding, because that's a outside of government-sponsored um, investment in companies. There, that's another avenue that I know we've had a local uh, involvement in. Yeah. 
sure, happy to, to come in that a little bit. So, I mean, I agree with Barbara that, that really the, the loan mechanism isn't really what we see is is the, the primary vehicle. Although a lot of people come to us, you know, asking you know for that, and there certainly are some some non dilutive sources of funding for certain types of of uh, companies, uh, in particular in life science space, right through the federal programs that are available um, through a couple of different. Organizations. One of the things that we've done at Connect is start a uh, our, our capital formation program, Capital Match. One part of that, uh, besides our investment uh, group of, of uh, individuals, high net worth individuals, angel networks, some VCs, um, we've also created a syndicate on Angels List, which is a bit of an experiment and, and sort of an interesting experiment. Again, it's just one of the tools around raising you know capital. It's been quite successful uh, up in the Bay Area for certain types of more consumer-facing types of, of products. Um, it, and it started as a posting board early on, and now is, is essentially converted into a series of syndicates. So there's usually a syndicate lead, in this case Connect, uh, that brings a specific opportunity uh, to that marketplace and then allows individuals to invest uh, small amounts of dollars, as little as $1,000 per uh, opportunity, which is, is pretty unique as typically the, the, the check size you need to write is, is you know, $25,000, or $100,000 or so per, per company. So it's interesting both from the perspective that as an entrepreneur you can reach into potentially a broader set of individuals that can fund your company and reverse or flip side for the investor who wants to create a portfolio of early stage companies, this gives you a mechanism where you can take a, a modest amount of money and invest in say you know, five, ten. 15 or so, you know, companies fairly easily. So that's one small thing that we're doing. Obviously, it's a, it, um, you know, there needs to be more. If, if what Al is saying is correct, that would be fantastic to have a larger, you know, regional fund or more. There are a few funds being created. There's a, a new fund that's a little bit later staged. They just got formed very, very recently with some former partners from BCG. They raised $65 million of a target of a $100 million raise, which they'll most likely close soon. Um, so that's, you know, that's good, and there's a few others around, and, and uh, Barbara mentioned Mike Krenn's effort up in the Bay Area, which is terrific, and, and we're certainly supportive of that. There's, when it comes to, to capital, as, as everyone knows, as entrepreneurs, the, the more, the better. One quick thing regarding the funding. A thing that's obviously close to my heart is the entrepreneur challenge, um, and it's the rise of prize capitalism. So it's supported by um, a variety of charitable funds and the university. And uh, it's an opportunity for students or people in the community with a university affiliation to pitch and earn that first, that first $100,000 that's really difficult to, to grow. Um, and it, it, that organization has had wonderful support from all of the rep- organizations represented up here on the stage. I want to suggest one other possible advantage that San Diego may have in terms of building its, its uh, innovation sort of ecosystem, and that is our sort of leading expertise in the employee ownership model of uh, the business organization. I should probably just introduce myself briefly. My name is I'm Martin Stavis. I'm the executive director of the Beister Institute here at UCSD's Rady School of Management. And most of you probably recognize the Beister name. John Robert Beister was the founder of SAIC which he started in 1969, and 30 years later, it was a Fortune 500 company, all based on the idea that people who worked there participated in ownership of the company. And I think that idea is, I want to suggest that's probably much more important than even that it was in 1969. And the reason, I think, goes to what Barbara said about the real challenge in being successful in innovation entrepreneurship is not so much coming up with a great idea, because that's, there's a lot of them around for creative people. It's the implementation, she mentioned, how hard that is to do. So we need working places, we need organizations that's filled with people who are 
proactive, sort of self-starters, creative people, problem-solving, and above all, really passionately committed to being successful in this organization. And the challenge is, how do you do that? How do you get a group of people together, a whole team in your organization who feel that way, who are demonstrating those kinds of behaviors and those abilities? Challenge, you, you can't buy that. You can pay enough people to get people to come to work for you, but they won't be passionate and creative. Uh, you can't order it. That doesn't work. So how do you get that? And what we're finding is this model where you give people a real stake in the outcome of the organization, and then they begin to feel both a financial and a psychological ownership piece in this team. They become really committed, really passionate. So through SAIC's work, all the things that have trickled down from there and permeated through the area, we have an advantage in that. It's something we can leverage to build more successful organizations. There's a ton of research shows employee-owned companies are faster growing, more, more productive. Uh, so it's an edge we should leverage. That's my thought. Thank you, Martin. Um, um, I want to. I, I was thinking. Uh, I am um, pretty interested in this topic in a couple of different ways. I think it also ties perhaps to what Barbara was saying earlier about the the inclusion nature of where we need to go in the next you know ten, twenty, thirty years, which is making sure that everybody gets on this, gets involved in this game, and everyone gets on this escalator, right? Um, so two years ago, when I well three years ago, so about a year into my tenure here at Connect, uh, I ran into the the two brothers that are the founders of the California Fruit Wine Company, and we had the same discussion. And, and basically, we already have a tool to do this, right? It's called stock options. Um, but but the, the, the nuance is not taking, and, and what Brian was talking about, was not taking just the 15% standard option pool for the management team. But, but frankly, as a founder, what he wanted to do was take more than half the company and give that to his employees. And I was r really just taken aback in a really positive way that, that he came up with this you know, idea that essentially he said, look, I mean, the, the, the old school way uh, from Brian's perspective is, hey, you, you, you know, there, I would be the founder and I would own you know, a huge chunk of the company and I'd give a small piece of the company to my uh, fellow employees to, to kind of help them along a little bit and maybe they can buy a nice house someday or what have you. But, his, and, and, but then later on he said what I would do is I would take all that, those winnings uh, from my company and, and give that away through philanthropic endeavors later on. And what he basically said was, look, I want to do that right now, today. I want to give half my company to my employees. And his rationale was, look, if I, why should I, as the founder, be you know, holding with my brother 80% of the equity and these engineers and other people that are working for me, salespeople, you know, technicians, people that are running the office and so forth, the marketing team, the IT team and so forth, why should they be only making 50 grand or 60 grand and have you know, 0.001% of the company when, in fact, frankly, the company is successful because of them. So I think it's a really interesting model, and I think it's all around where do you dial in that percentage, uh, and that is going to be the argument. But, you know, kind of back to Barbara's point that you started out in her comments, this is going to be about creating more equality economically, and that's only going to happen if founders uh, are willing to share more of the spoils. And same, frankly, with the investors. I think we've got a long way to go, it just beginning, as I started to say earlier, in terms of investing in these companies. I mean, a company, Nirvana, was sold recently for $450 million, and I bet there's nobody here that, that had a piece of that. There's four investors that I know of, but they're all not from San Diego. They're all from outside. So we basically worked for them to make $450 million, which is great for them, less great, you know, pretty good for the founders, less great for the, everybody else. So I think that's the first step. And the second step, then, is to create more opportunities for water, sw a wider swath of individuals that are making these companies so great. Okay, I think we need to close now. Um, I first want to thank Brianna Weisinger. She's the mastermind of the entire Ignite conference. Stand up, Brianna. She's
been incredible in putting this conference together and was incredibly supportive of this session. So I want to thank her. And just a brief note, uh, Bowen, I want to thank all of our panelists, including Dean Pisano, who's trying to sneak out. And uh, um, you were all wonderful. I'm sure the future of the economy is in great hands. Um, and just the final um, note to close on, I wanted to mention the entrepreneurial culture because as we try to build the future of the innovation economy, we have to work on that culture, and it's natural for us. And just to bring that point home, I want to uh, share something that a, post, a Japanese postdoc at the Salk Institute mentioned when he was going through the culture shock of coming to this country. And he said, in Japan, we have one right way of doing everything. In this country, you have many right ways of doing everything. And the entrepreneurial culture grabs that and runs with it. So let's keep going and building that culture. Thank everybody for coming. Have a great rest of the conference. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.